Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, with Tasting Menu, a selection of tasty pieces from this week's coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy, and I lead Economist Radio. On our menu this week, Brazil's record-breaking ballot spoiling, Nigeria's blossoming trade in love literature, and a glimpse inside the world of a super-yacht owner. But first, the road to Brexit was our cover line. After Britain's vote earlier this year to leave the European Union, the new Prime Minister must steer the country out. But with so many potential pitfalls en route, she must resist her party's dangerous instincts, we argued. Britain is leaving the European Union. The journey, however, will be complex and perilous, beset by wrong turnings, chicanes and elephant traps. Theresa May has jumped behind the wheel and she's ready to start the engine. In a speech that thrilled party activists, she declared that she will invoke Article 50 of the EU treaty by the end of March, triggering a two-year countdown that should see Britain leave the Union in early 2019. She's hinted that she may take the road to a hard Brexit, involving a wide separation of labour, product and financial markets. Mrs May is under pressure to convince those who voted to leave that their victory will be honoured, that Brexit means Brexit. That is why her speech conveyed urgency. And when it came to immigration, sovereignty and the jurisdiction of the European Court in Luxembourg, she took a hard line. But domestic rhetoric may hinder her chances of negotiating on the continent. To maximise her bargaining power... Mrs May needs time. To get the best deal, she needs to be flexible on immigration. Even her underlings have tabled some concessions already. To avoid suffocating industry, ministers have already indicated that they may let in financial services employees as well as seasonal agricultural workers. There are sure to be more exceptions as bottlenecks emerge. To find out how we propose Britain be guided safely and successfully out of the European Union, pick up a copy of this week's issue. As we deliberate the best way forward, we move over to Brazil, where many voters were decidedly undecided. As an article in our America section explained, when more votes come in spoiled than cast, it does suggest a fair amount of electoral disdain. Brazilians find local elections dull, but the first round of voting in this year's contests on October 2nd was anything but... The result? Voters are fed up. Even though voting is obligatory, nearly a fifth of the electorates did not show up, a record high for a local poll. In many places, the sum of no-shows plus blank and spoiled ballots outstripped votes for the winner. And it's conventional politicians who've taken the hit. In Belo Horizonte, Brazil's fourth largest city, a former chairman of a local football club will face the team's former goalkeeper in a runoff on October 30th. I guess that takes the term grudge match to a new level. 
the electorate is turning its back on politics, and it's fair to say they do have a reason. The anti-political mood owes much to recession and to the Petrobras scandal, which almost weekly exposes a new case of wrongdoing by one of the country's most prominent politicians or businessmen. Moving away from Brazil's disruptive ballot casting, we fly over to Nigeria, where we find a blossoming market in subversive books. An article in our Middle East and Africa section explained that in the religious regions in the country's north, many young girls are turning to love literature for moral support. A few minutes into Kantin Kwari Market, sandwiched between the stalls selling grain and those hawking second-hand shirts, is a little alleyway where girls flock for advice. A commodity in short supply in Nigeria's Muslim north. Where women are poorly schooled and married off at their father's behest often as children. And so it's literature many are turning to for talks about the birds and the bees. Those with wedding woes or family dramas could do worse than consult the Litatu Fansoyaya, or love literature, flogged by booksellers there. Written in Hauser, these romantic novels are the work of mostly female authors who have been printing their own works in Kano since Nigeria's publishing industry fell apart in the 1980s. Not exactly Fifty Shades of Grey, our article conceded. Many are classic Cinderella stories or pious parables about housewifery. But there are also blistering tales of child marriage, polygamy and philandering, subversive stuff for a conservative region. As Nigeria's young women move beyond their conservative upbringing, elsewhere in our coverage, we see a revival of efforts to spring people from inherited destitution. Micro-lending, an idea pioneered in the 1970s of enriching the poor by advancing them small amounts of money, is booming once again around the developing world. In Money Talks, our weekly podcast on business and finance, Joel Budd, our social policy editor, described the innovations in the industry this time around. Some of the really exciting innovation is not in South Asia, but it's in East Africa. So two big things are happening there. One is that uh, some charities have managed to make micro-lending work for small farmers. So they offer seeds and fertiliser on credit, bundled together with agricultural insurance and training. And the other big thing in East Africa is that a lot of loans are now being advanced by the telecommunications companies through mobile money. At the other end of the financial spectrum, our Schumpeter columnist turned his attention to the buoyant business of super yachts, I like to think from the upper deck martini in hand. In our business section, he gave us a glimpse inside the world of the super-rich. The Monaco Yacht Show is arguably the world's most extravagant game of one-upmanship. This year, more visitors than ever, 34,500, came to gawp at 125 super-yachts with a collective value of $2.7 billion, tied up in the Principality's Port Hercules. But don't be too envious. Even superyacht owners have issues to contend with. Oh, yes, such as what features to have on one's yacht, for example. Now that helicopters and on-board swimming pools are taken for granted, the battle has moved onto new ground. The hottest fashion is for support vessels. Why load down your 150-metre yacht with toys when you can put them on a smaller support ship and have them provided to you on demand. Well, I always do, but there are less extravagant ways to outdo competitors. A new generation of superyacht owners want to make passage for far-flung places such as the northernmost Norwegian fjords or even to Antarctica. 
young tech entrepreneurs in particular are more interested in chalking up experiences than piling up possessions. Whatever floats their boats, it's consistently big business. When the Monaco Yacht Show started in 1991, there were just 1,147 superyachts, that is, yachts longer than 30 metres, in the global superyacht fleet. Today, there are 4,473, with another 473 under construction. And while the world economy is wobbling, it's calm seas ahead for the superyacht industry. For pristine yachts, there are still underexploited markets such as Asia. The first generation of Asian billionaires have been too busy making money to hear the call of the ocean. But it cannot be long before their Western-educated heirs start adding yacht shows to their social calendars. We move now from the high seas to the factory floor, exploring how artificial intelligence is making its mark in the workplace. Research analyst Alberto Moel joined us in the studio on our science and technology show, Babbage, to tell us how innovative sensors and programming are making automation far smarter. The new approach is where the robot itself has some form of self-knowledge, if you will. You can put in a conductive scan, you can put around its sensors, you can put a camera to it that, such that it identifies items that are not part of its plan and can stop or act accordingly or work along with the humans. And so the, this hardware cost that I talk about, this algorithm development, is improving, allowing that to be much more cost-effective year on year. And therefore, these robots are getting loaded with, if you will, bells and whistles that allow that to happen cost-effectively and make it a good investment. In fact, the robots are getting endowed with sensors. Yes, you could say that. As robotic sensors become increasingly intelligent, we take a look at companies tinkering with their human employees' emotional responses. Our final taste of this week's coverage comes from the letters to the editor. A recent Schumpeter column argued that companies which try to turn happiness into a management tool are overstepping the mark. That clearly resonated with one reader who wrote in to share his experience. David Rowe from Saddlebrook, Arizona, wrote... Schumpeter's piece was fascinating. His descriptions of the heavy-handed attempts to enforce outwardly cheery behaviour reminded me of an old joke about a corporate memo to all employees informing them that the floggings will continue until happiness improves. And quite right too. I'm Anne McElvoy. That was our tasting menu. Do send us your feedback by email to radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. In London, this is The Economist. Economist.